Please rise for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. It's interesting, but not particularly surprising, that human nature finds the commandments of God to be burdensome. In light of the fact that all of his commands are given for our good. Thus, to point out where we are transgressing those commandments, that is, sin, is often seen as offensive, harsh. Unwelcomed. How rude of the Bible to point out our flaws, our disobedience. That makes me feel bad. John, who is known as the Apostle of Love, says this in 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And of course, as Jesus says more than once, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But again, as sinners, we often find that repulsive. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to obey. We don't want to do anything other than what we want to do. And if anyone messes with that, we tend to point the finger at them. So... What happens is, I think there is this one view, and unfortunately I see it expanding among those who call themselves Christians, that says something like this, If you love me, you will leave me alone and make me feel good about whatever it is I'm doing. I want a Jesus who serves me. I'm willing, in fact, to reject what Jesus says about sin, hell, and love, and law, and anything else, if it makes me feel bad. The world is full of churches, unfortunately, that have accommodated this demand to be seeker-friendly. We don't want you to feel bad. We want to make sure you at all times feel good about yourself. Now, Jesus did come to seek, but he came to seek only what was lost. Now, there's another view The view that says the Christian faith is rooted first and foremost at the very beginning in self-denial, dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, repentance from sin, and actively serving Jesus, which moves in the opposite direction of this other view. Conviction of sin is welcomed. It's welcome because it turns out that is the only means of growth, the only means of sanctification. 
of making us more like our Savior. This is true love because it is rooted in the truth, and it is only in the truth that we are ultimately set free. The epistle to the Ephesians is a powerful example of this true gospel, this genuine good news that the old man has been replaced by a new man and that the fruit of that transformation is inevitably seen in how we live. We are more zealous for Christ, not less. We love God's people. We want to be with them. I've often said what troubles me sometimes as a pastor and I'm talking with other pastors, and hopefully it troubles you as well, is not just that people don't come to church or don't participate in the worship of God and the things of God. It's that they don't want to. It's not that there aren't reasons and things that come up for all of us. I've been out for two weeks because I was sick and had no choice. But my longing is to be back with you, to be back before God, to be with the people of God and to be before him. And so when there's a lack of desire, that's an indication of a problem. So rather than growing dull of hearing, those who love Jesus and who are loved by Jesus and who perceive that love are enlivened in our worship. Those who are dull and indifferent about worship, I I believe, have either failed to comprehend or have forgotten just what it is the gospel does for us. When we have felt the love of God, then our chief end becomes the glory of God and not simply our private pursuits. The Jesus that serves your personal pleasure, let me tell you, will disappoint you because he is a false Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, as a result, the real Jesus demands what? Your entire life. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is your King. You are His servant. You are His subject. And and because of that, because He possesses you, He purchased you, you belong to Him, because of that, He can save you. If He doesn't possess you, if He doesn't own you, if He's not the Lord of you, that means you're the Lord of you. Save yourself. So lordship and his, his salvation go hand in hand. They're in, those cannot be separated. We were originally created, how? In the likeness of God. With knowledge, righteousness, and dominion over the creatures. And of course, sin wrecked all of that. Sin uh, wrecked it, but the gospel has begun the work of restoring us to the image of God. We're to reflect Him. God is our ultimate ideal. And thus Paul calls on us in this text to do what? To be imitators of God. Mimics of God. To act like He does in our character. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. And in order for us to imitate him, of course, we must first know him. And so it has pleased him to reveal himself through his word and through his son. We know something of his communicable attributes. We know something of his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his long-suffering, 
his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his love. And so the first motive that we're given in this text to be imitators of God is given in here when it says we're to do this because of why? We are his dear children. That's, that's a profound assertion. We are God's dear, you are God's dear child. Brian Chapel wrote, God's imperatives and our obedience rest on that loving relationship. They do not form the relationship. We obey because we're loved. We are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates the obedience of his children. Think about how Paul opened this epistle to the Ephesians. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by, Je- uh, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And again, in, in the second chapter, he says, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've had a complete change of status. You've been adopted. You're now a member of the family. He is now your father. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's very personal. You, in particular, have been added to this household. Two different metaphors here. One, a picture of you as a child. Another is a stone in this building that's being built. But you are integral to what God is doing. He is making you part of his household. We are not only his children, though. He says we are his dear children. Uh, We could translate that beloved or esteemed. This is far more than a legal relationship. He positively loves and demonstrates that love to us in profound ways. He knows our names. Jesus says in John 10 that he calls his sheep by name. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He supplies all of our needs. He knows all of our needs before we ask or think. This being the case, if you perceive that, If you truly perceive that, then that, of course, then becomes our our greatest desire comes would be to please him, to walk in a manner worthy of that high calling. Each of us represent our families. And as we receive all the benefits of this family, the church, we likewise carry the responsibilities and perform the duties associated with being part of this family. 
And he says in this text, we're to do that by walking in love. Living next to each other. Walking side by side. Loving each other. That's the primary way that we imitate God. You see, it's not off on a hilltop somewhere meditating on God in some kind of mysterious, mystical way. That's actually pretty easy. Easy to love in the abstract. It's hard to love you. It's hard to love me. That's hard. Because you know why? That requires sacrifice. That requires me giving up something of myself in order to put you first. And of you giving up some of yourself to put others first. That's the essence of love. Self-sacrifice. Walking in love. In other words, imitating God toward one another. And so as a church, after nearly 20 years together, we've gotten to know one another pretty well. You have discovered uh, many of the flaws in your pastor and his preaching and in your fellow church members. We all fall short in our gifts. I'm certainly no Charles Spurgeon, never will be. But these are the gifts and these are the people that God thought we needed. With all of their flaws, with all of their shortcomings, these are the ones he, in his kind providence, put together to sit here this morning next to one another and to do it for 20 years and maybe 20 more, and I don't know. And it's not easy. In fact, the longer we do it, in some ways it gets harder because we know each other better. And we can grow dull and grow weary tired and I'm saying that this I think what Paul's saying here today is we need to be stirred up here to walk in love and so loving each other imitating God toward one another requires sacrifice denying ourselves accepting the imperfections and finding ways to be thankful God says to rejoice in and for all things you think he doesn't realize that pretty much all things except for him and his word are imperfect That your spouse is imperfect, that your children are imperfect, that your parents are imperfect, that your friends are imperfect, that everything is imperfect. And he says, I want you to be thankful for those people, and I want you to rejoice in and for all things. Accepting all the imperfections. It has pleased God to load us up with flawed people. Most of us are mules instead of racehorses. We could use another word, but I won't. (laughs) Some of us. (laughs) We should never forget that what pleases God is not necessarily what pleases men. He prefers, I think, see a group of Christians in a dark catacomb filled with joy and serving one another. I believe he prefers that over barren cathedra- the barren cathedrals of Europe. He finds pleasure even in a joyful noise. We are called to be imitators of God in our relationships with one another as the Previous verse of chapter, the closing verse of chapter 4, right before he says, 
as dear children, be imitators of God. What did he say? Being kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And his next words are imitate that. That's where the rubber hits the road. Jesus demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to improve first. He took us how we were. He took us in our broken, wretched condition. And from there, he began his work of love. He initiated. We love him because he first loved us. And when he sacrificed himself for rotten sinners, God said what? The text says, God said, that smells good. That smells good. And when we sacrifice for one another, imitating the love of Christ, that smells good to God as well. He loves it when His beloved children imitate Him in this. And so our text says, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and and has given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Since God is love, and we are imitators of God, therefore love should be the greatest characteristic of our life. That's what you should be known for. How much you love people. How much you love your family. How much you love the brethren. How much you love, that ought to be the thing that is up front. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that we are his disciples. And as you've heard me emphasize for some time now, self-sacrifice for others is the essence of love. Christ loved us and gave himself for us, and we're now called to do the same thing for one another. It is not only hard, it is impossible without the supernatural work of God's Spirit in us to enable us to do this. The sacrifice of love extends or should extend to our attitudes, our words, and our behavior toward one another. And I want to note that this is at the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. I find it helpful, others, you've heard this before, but I've always found it helpful for myself to pronounce that word when I see it, at one moment. Because that's what it's about. Taking two parties that are not at one, that are not in communion, that are separated, that there is enmity between, and bringing them together, removing the obstacle, the sin that has separated and killed, and bringing people together to be one, that is the work of the atonement of Christ, bringing us into communion with God and with one another. And here's another place where doctrine and life come together. Having right ideas about the doctrine of the atonement is essential if we are to see the fruit in our lives. The Bible doesn't simply give us some general sentimental statement about the love of God. That's one of the problems in the church is that we have turned God's love into something that's warm and fuzzy and set, up against, set it up against truth and law and doctrine. We, want, no, we don't need any of that. We just need love. But we've redefined love in the process. And so people might say something like, love divi- uh, doctrine divides, but love unites. But that's false. 
Doctrine without love divides. But there is no love without doctrine, without truth. It is the unity and the truth that demonstrates love. If you love your children, you make them do things that are good for them, even if they don't always want to do them at the time. Discipline, for example, in your family or in the church, which is the enforcement of truth and doctrine, is critical to real love. An undisciplined family or church will not last for long. It will fall apart. It will disintegrate. Imagine what would happen to an undisciplined military. We see that in the world sometimes when some country who decides, well, we're going, we're going to, uh, so the American troops pull out and they're going to defend themselves and pretty soon they're running for the hills. An undisciplined military, fall in if you feel like it, doesn't work. Building that military unit as a whole, as a unit, as a unit, is what enables them to do what? Ultimately love each other, protect each other. I've got your back. You can count on me. I will be there. I will do my job. I will become skilled at that job. But I expect you to do the same. And together, we're stronger than we are individually. An undefined love is not love at all. It is only a cheap and deadly counterfeit of love. But the Bible knows better, and therefore it insists on defining love. And we have a good summary of it in in these verses. Since ideas have consequences, that is, what you believe, your doctrine, always bears some kind of a fruit, we can therefore look at your fruit and determine what you believe. This is an inescapable concept. For example, we can look at your marriage and see what you believe about Christ and his church. As a man thinks, so is he. Everything that Jesus did, everything he did was driven by his love. His love for the Father and his love for you. But in order to know and appreciate the love of Christ for you, there must necessarily be some understanding of the Christian doctrine of sin. Oh, we don't want to hear about sin. That makes us feel bad. Well, I've got to tell you something. You've got to feel bad before you can feel good. If you don't hear about sin, then you can't hear about the love of Christ. And you can't hear about the gospel. You have to know the truth about yourself. You have to know the truth about your condition. No one likes to receive a negative diagnosis, but without it, you will never, ever receive the remedy. Not telling you the truth about your condition might give some false solace today, but it will kill you tomorrow. Jesus came to save sinners, not good people. If you're such a good person, then the odd thing, of course, would be that Jesus wouldn't automatically love you anyway. You're such a great person. Of course Jesus loves me. Look at me. What's not to love? Spurgeon said, he must have loved me before I was born, because if he waited till after I was born, he wouldn't have found anything to love. But if you realize what Paul says in Romans 5 is true about you, then you begin to see something of the depth and the detail of Christ's love for you. Listen to what Paul says. For when we were still without strength... 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will die, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Have you ever come to the place that the Apostle Paul came where you can honestly say of yourself, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, not one. Not a smidgen. Not any. The love of Christ is defined. It is particular. It is specific. It is demonstrated in the fact that he gave himself for us. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes... He became poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This was not passive. It was active, positive love toward us. John 10, Therefore my Father loves me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus didn't have to do this. And then our text tells us that this was an offering and a sacrifice. An offering is a gift that is presented to someone else. In this case, to God the Father. The word sacrifice should draw our attention back to all the sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament all of which pointed to the sacrificial work of Christ on our behalf. The bulls, the goats, the lambs, the doves, the grain, the blood, the fire, the smoke, all of that and much more teach us something about the loving work of Christ for us. And then Paul tells us that this offering and sacrifice of Christ is for a sweet-smelling aroma to God. We first read of this in Genesis chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. God says, that smell is so good. The offering and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, on our behalf, pleased God. It ascended up into his presence and gave him uh, the pleasure of smelling fresh baked bread. Or the smell I used to smell every Sunday going home from church as we opened the door of the house and the roast that had been in the oven since we left that morning. 
it ascended up into his presence and gave him pleasure. We must remember that this love of Christ demonstrated by his offering and sacrifice was for us. Put your name in there. He gave himself for us to benefit us. He took our place. He stood in for us. This is the vicarious substitutionary atonement. John the Baptist recognized this as the ultimate mission of Jesus from the beginning. When when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sins and guilt are transferred to him. He is then stricken, smitten, and afflicted. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. The world hates the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. It's repulsive. I think it's too negative. They think it's too negative and ugly because the idea that our sins would actually require the human sacrifice of the Son of God to deal with them is repulsive. Surely our sins can't be that bad. But the power and love of God turn suffering into an act of love. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Real love. The love that matters. The love that saves. The love that imitates God is always seen in our offering a sacrifice to others. Kids, are you the one at home when somebody says, pick that up, and you're the first one to say, I didn't drop it. It's not mine. He did it. She did it. Why don't you just sacrifice yourself and pick it up? In fact, do better than that. Don't wait to have to be told by your mother to do it. Just do it. And what if nobody sees you do it? And what if nobody compliments you for having gone that extra mile and sacrificed so greatly by picking up that little piece of trash and putting it in the trash can, even though you didn't do it? God sees it and he says, that smells good. That is what we're called to practice this week. At our house, with our family, at our school, at our job, with our neighbors. Love. 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 Let's pray. Father, walking in love is difficult for us because we love ourselves more than we love you or our neighbors. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for our sakes. Help us to be imitators of that kind of love. 
toward those you have put in our lives. When they fail us, disappoint us, and sin against us, help us to imitate Jesus at those very points. He paid for our sins. Help us to do the same toward others who have sinned against us. And when we sin, help us to welcome the conviction of sin and to repent from those sins that we might, in order that we might know the love and communion that you have called us to. May we be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We start each week at the communion table in order to remember that Jesus loves us. He died for us. He purchased us with his own blood. He cleanses us from sin. And he has called us to follow him. This table is the very picture of loving communion. If we embrace its meaning and not simply its ritual then God is going to use it to send us out with fresh focus and memory of what he's done and why we're here. So form without substance is just formalism, and God is never pleased with formalism. He loves the form when it points to the substance. When we're called, uh, when we're called to be imitators of God, imitators of Christ's love, here it is. It's set before us. So that we go, when we go from here, we go with the purpose and the commitment to duplicate that, to mimic that at our house, not just the form around our dinner tables, for example, but the substance in our relationships, real self-sacrificing love for one another. That's the offering and the sacrifice our Father wants to smell from us. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage, wisdom, and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means that you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to be eager to serve in your church. Send laborers into your harvest and give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. What a heritage you have given to your church. We have the gospel in all its truth. Teach us to appreciate that godly persons were willing to sacrifice their lives for these treasures. Keep us in this truth and make us instruments for its preservation and for generations to come. Arm us with the weapons of the gospel to defend the holy ground of our fathers that they contended for. Stamp out the spirit of compromise and keep us from yielding even the least particle of the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Be our mighty fortress to protect us from the devil. And may we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we, as the true church, manifest your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God through all eternity. And we pray your blessings now upon our feast, upon our rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.